you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. Um, if you don't, the scripture is printed in your bulletin on page 6. There's also a place to take notes on page 7. Where we look at Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. As we begin a new series this month. So Romans 8, 14 to 17. Friends, listen. This is the word of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For he did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. This is God's word. So we are starting a new series. It's going to last the month of May. Um, April's series was all about justification, right? Um, and here's what's exciting, because so many of you, I think, some of you learned about justification for the first time, but so many of you already knew about justification, and yet you didn't understand what it meant to live as justified people. Uh, I had lots of people giving me feedback about how their life, their, their thinking about how God looks at them daily was transformed by what we talked about in April. Um, and what's exciting is that if you thought justification was good news, we are just getting started. We are just getting started. Okay, justification is this amazing way that God begins to share his extravagant grace with us. You know, we start our relationship with him with justification, but justification is just the beginning. Okay, I want to remind you that justification, it answers our legal problems with God, right? That our sin causes before God to judge. Okay, and remember the scene. The scene is us. We're defendants in a courtroom. Right? The evidence is all submitted, and we are guilty. We are guilty. But Jesus comes in as our advocate, and he intercedes for us. He stands in between us and justice, not by spinning the truth. Right? He doesn't change the truth. He doesn't make us sound better than we are. But he offers himself in our place. Right? And he takes our sentence and then gives us his perfect record, right? And so because of this, justice is satisfied. We are forgiven. God sees us as though we are as righteous as Jesus. This is justification. We probably just stop right here, right? And just keep living with this in the month of May. Right? How do you move on from that? And yet, we need to because the Bible tells us there's even more that Jesus does for us. There's more than justification. Because um, consider more of the courtroom scene. Okay? Typically, typically, when someone shows up in court and they're convicted of a crime, usually that's not the first thing that they've ever done wrong. Okay, usually by the time you're standing in court and you're convicted, their life has been on a trajectory that has been leading in this direction for a long, long time. Usually. And that path usually includes a broken family, a bad environment, and many bad decisions. 
according to one national study that I read, within three years of being released from either prison or jail, so three years after being released, seven out of ten males will be rearrested. Seventy percent will be rearrested, and half will end up back in prison. And one of the main reasons why they find themselves back in prison is because when they get out, they go back to their normal life. They go back to the same environment that led them to the crime they got convicted of in the first place. And this isn't just a national study, but I spent a lot of time when I was at my last church in Orange County, I spent a lot of time in the Santa Ana jail talking to folks, talking to inmates. And it was amazing to listen to them. Like, some of them were afraid to get out because they got in and they found Jesus and they knew what was waiting for them outside. They knew that there was no hope for them. That all that was waiting for them was the culture, the environment, the kingdom that brought them there in the first place. And so it's interesting because going back to the image of the judge in the courtroom justifying, like, even if the judge in the courtroom would have forgiven the guilty defendant, you with me? Even if he would have said you're forgiven, even if the guilty person were to go free, what's going to happen next? 70% of the time, you're a repeat offender. <clears throat> think about it in a different way. As we think about justification, justification will be abused if nothing else changes. And so, when we think about the scene and the gospel, we think about the good news of Jesus, what does the judge do? What does the judge do? So after declaring that the sinner is forgiven, after accepting the sinner as righteous, God the judge leaves the bench. He then comes next to the justified sinner, and God performs a second legal act. God adopts the sinner into his This is what the Bible says. God says, look, not only are you forgiven, but now you are my child. You are in my family. You now live in my environment, in my culture. You now live with me always. The Bible says that God adopts all those that he forgives. I mean, look at our text. Right, look at our text. Let's see how many times in these four verses God speaks about adoption. Right? Do some circling if you can. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. God declares them to be sons. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Right, circle that. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. God is now just judge, not just savior, but he's now father. The spirit, of, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ. And to receive, this is what God does. God adopts those that he loves. 
And it's repeated over and over and over again because God wants us to know that when we believe in Jesus, God becomes not just our Savior, but He becomes our Father. Our Father. I found this quote in a book called Changes That Heal. It says this. It says, since we often do what we know is wrong, rules rarely keep us in mind. Love does a much better job of motivating us to be what we want to be. Thinking of how we might hurt the one we love is much stronger than thinking of some rule we must keep. So if it's about rules, sometimes rules aren't very effective. But if it's about your Father in Heaven, if it's about a relationship, that is powerful. I want to see if I can illustrate this visually, thinking about justification and adoption. So you see here, if, if justification shines a light onto God's extravagant grace, then adoption is the shining of the sun. Okay, if justification shines a light on God's extravagant grace, then adoption is the shining of the sun. Justification brings light. Adoption brings light and warmth. This is part of God's extravagant grace. We see here from Henry Cloud, changes the deal. Grace is unbroken, uninterrupted, unearned, accepting relationship. Grace is the relational aspect of God's character. So when God saves you, He doesn't just save you and hope for the best. God says, you're my family now. We have a relationship where I am your father. I'll give you another quote. This is from J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God. He says, justification is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Do you see this? In John's gospel, when, when it says that of his fullness we have received and grace upon grace. Justification is just the beginning. It just begins the relationship. But we learn, as we see adoption, it begins, it gets even better. Um, J.I. Packer goes on to say this, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So I just want to set your mind that this is the this is the, the, the power of God's adopting grace, His adopting love. And when God revealed that, when God said, you are sons of God, you're children of God, then I am your father. When God said all this, this was designed to come across as the greatest news 
of all time. For God to say this, God was trying to say, like, I can't tell you in any, in any greater way how much I love you. I can't explain to you uh, how, 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 how extravagant my grace is. But, but, here's the problem. The problem is that for so many people, thinking about God as Father may not be good news at all. I mean, if we're going to be honest, right, none of us have had perfect parents. And some of us have dealt with real issues, like significant abuse growing up, or even not just growing up, but through your whole life. And so for some, for some people, thinking about God as Father is not a happy thought. Comparing God to what you know as Father or even Mother does not bring up good memories, doesn't bring up good related connotations. And in fact, I think this is something that a lot of us need to deal with um, so that we can actually receive the blessing of adoption. It's really interesting how our personal experiences can keep us from hearing what God has to say to us. If you've had an awful experience with a mother or a father, if you've been raised in an environment where you just don't want to go there. Then when the Bible talks about adoption, you may not think that's good news. If you spend any time reading psychology or counseling, you know, both the, the best kind and the kind that would disagree with Scripture, you know that parents have a huge impact on their children. The kind of person that we are is in so many ways directly the result of how we were parented. God created the role of parents and entrusted parents with this incredible responsibility to nurture and train their children. And, and when parents fail, problems multiply. Problems exponentially multiply. Children grow up and struggle with anger, with guilt. They, they, they sometimes will isolate themselves. They struggle with meaningless. They detach deal with addictions, codependency. I mean, there are real connections that can be made with missing things from your parents or getting bad things from your parents and, and ways that we cope with those things later in life. But no matter how bad or how our parents raised us, what we need to make sure, we need to be able to receive what God has for us. So if you had a bad experience, realize that when we're talking about the fatherhood of God, God as Father, we're talking about adoption. So if you've had an awful experience, let God adopt you. Okay? Let, you, you can leave that environment and let God show you what it means that he is your father. This is part of the power of adoption. I want to just say it very, very clearly so that you can hear it and receive it. Um, God is not like your parents. God is a perfect father. He is not like your parents. 
to you. Receive his adopted grace. So we need to reset this idea. What does it mean for God to be our Father? Let me just give you a really simple definition. If God is Father, means he is your loving authority. He is your loving authority. This is my best effort to summarize all of what the Bible says about God as Father. It means He is your loving authority. Okay, when we usually think of the word authority, usually the people that talk about authority tend to be the people who don't like use it well, who shouldn't have it. Right? You might think about tyrants, dictators, you know, but even bosses, you know, um, that have abused their authority or, or bad parents. Uh, politicians, businessmen. Um, but what's interesting is that authority is not necessarily bad. Um, in fact, when authority is properly exercised, it often doesn't feel so much like authority in the lives of the people who are under it. And, and loving is almost never used with authority. But I don't think there's a better word to describe the kind of authority that the Father that God the Father exercises toward his children. And so as we think about God's authority, we learn what it means to have God as our Father. And, and as we see God as our Father, we'll also start to see how all human authority ought to operate. It'll begin to shape our thinking about what does it mean to be a parent, obviously, but also what does it mean to be a boss? What does it mean to be in charge? What does it mean to have authority or have power? And how do we use that? I think the best human authority should remind people of God's authority. It should strive to feel like and look like the way God's authority is. And so we're going to spend this whole month trying to understand God's adopting love. What does it mean to have God as Father? And I want to show you one thing today with the rest of our time. Okay, just one implication of God's adopting love. Because adopting love, his loving authority means there is no fear. You can call him dad. If God is your father, there is no fear. You can call him dad. This is right out of verse 15. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we see here, this is not about fear. To be in a relationship with God, there is no fear. Because he's your father. And so I want you to see in this verse that having God as Father means you don't fear. Okay? Because I know what it was like for me at times where it seemed like fear was a big part of my relationship with my father. Um, I see in the way that I act as a father at times. 
that there's lots of fear in an unhealthy sense with the way that I treat my kids. But this verse says, you haven't, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But instead, you received the spirit of adoption as sons. So the idea here is that you can see God and smile. And you can know that he's smiling back at you. This is what it means for God to be Father. God loves you as you are. Um, and it's interesting because it, lots of people have talked about just that phrase, Abba, Father. And there's, there's different ways that people have translated that word, Abba. Um, some people say it means daddy. Um, and I do think that little kids would have called their, I mean, little kids did call their fathers Abba. And so it would be appropriate to translate it that way. But you also have to realize that Jesus, when he was 30-something, right, called his father in heaven Abba. And so I'm not sure, like, I don't know very many 30-year-olds that still call their father daddy. I mean, I could see that happening, and you know, I guess that would be fine in some ways, but, but this is a, the, the term Abba, it's a term of affection. And so I think one of the best ways to describe it is, is dad. It's dad. It's, it's clearly authority, but it's loving authority. It's safe authority. It's, it's familiar. It's familiar. The image that I have, like, there was a stool that was, like, right here that was, and Chad said, hey, are you going to be sitting on a stool? And I said, no, I didn't plan it. I'm not sure why the stool's out there. And I thought, you know what? I mean, in some ways, that's kind of the image, right? That God is our Father. He is sitting down and welcoming us. It's like he's in the living room or at the, at the dinner table, and he welcomes us when we come. We can talk to him. He's our dad. There's intimacy. There's closeness. Not to be afraid. There's no fear there. But we can call him dad. Do you think about God this way? Um, last night, kind of at the end of the night when the kids were written down, um, I, uh, I started working on my sermon and uh, I, I continued to work. I didn't stop. Like <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I began to work on my sermon, and um, and I just realized and felt huge conviction because here I am preaching on adoption, and I just I just had a really awful weekend. Like as a dad, did a really bad job. Short, impatient, angry, harsh, and. Like in knowing I was doing it in the midst of it and feeling like I just couldn't, I, like I couldn't pull the plug, I couldn't reboot, I couldn't get out of it. You, you ever feel that way? Um, and and so I just I started praying and remembering, like, and I said, Dad, I did an awful job these last two days. You know, when I'm home, like things are supposed to be better, and I think sometimes, man, sometimes I feel like. Other members of the house would rather not even be here on my day off. Um, and what was amazing was that like, I could call God Dad. You know, because like, He understands. Because He's with me. Uh, he cares. Um, 
he saw it. He and you know he had encouraging words for me. I mean, encouraging images, like to just to remind me that I'm forgiven and to try to like dust me off and, and get back on and, and you know that His grace is sufficient. And um, I began to think about how much God loves me and how different His love for me is and the love that I showed. And um, and this is what it means. It means that we can go into the presence of our dad. That's what he is. He's Abba to us. Let me just show you a couple other verses on this. Here's Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. Just to show us what the Bible says about God as Father. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Okay, any of y'all were listening five minutes ago when I talked about there's no fear? Right? What's up with this? Right? Anybody catch that? Wait, 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 wait. There's no fear in Romans 8. But wait, wait, God only shows compassion to those who fear him. What gives? Well, I think the word fear, um, a lot of times when it's used in relationship to God, a lot of times, not every time, but most of the time when it's used in relationship to God, it's not a good translation. It's really an awkward translation because when we think about fear, we think about, I am afraid of God. I am afraid of what he might do to me. I don't have all of these promises and these assurances. Have you ever struggled with that? Have you ever wondered, like, how is it that God can love us like this and yet we're supposed to be afraid of him? Um, well, I don't think it's the best translation. Um, I think that what it means to fear God is to revere him. It's to honor him with your allegiance. It's to have respect to the nth degree. And I feel like that's part of why we, they use a word like fear, because it's respect, but like super respect. And so, in English, again, it's awkward, but people who fear God in the way that the Bible means, they just they have a relationship with him. And so what it looks like, it looks like loving obedience. Okay, loving obedience would be a way to express what fear looks like. Okay, he's loving authority, and we give him loving obedience. Right, so that makes sense. Um, but, look what the verse says. It says that God shows compassion to those who have a relationship with him. He shows compassion. And so what this means is that and God understands us. And more specifically, he knows us and our limitations. He knows us and our limitations. That's huge. He understands us. He, he, he knows we're, we're dust. Right? Genesis chapter 2, we're made from the dust. He gets it. We're, we're made from the ground. He, he knows that we have weaknesses. He knows that we have limitations. And God's fatherly compassion treats us with understanding. And so what does this mean? Well, this means he doesn't push us too hard. Okay? He doesn't give us things that we can't handle. Now, oftentimes there's a little bit of a discrepancy, right? Lord, I don't think I can handle this. And you're thinking, well, God's like, all right, well, I think you can. But the point is that God doesn't push us too hard. He knows when we've had enough. And he comes alongside us, supporting us, giving us rest. And he reminds us of his approval. You know, that we're not trying to earn something from him. 
It's his, his compassion. As a father, he has compassion. And so he knows when you are at your limit. He knows when you are beyond your limits. He understands and he treats you accordingly. Can we give you other verses? 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, this is the last verse we're going to look at. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, it says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so here, this is the Apostle Paul, right? And he shows us here what fathers are like. And I feel like we get a really healthy balance here, right? From Psalm 103, we have the compassion and the understanding of our limitations. But then in 1 Thessalonians, fathers also exhort. They also encourage and they charge. Right? Fathers bring out the best of their children. They encourage it. To encourage, I mean, really means to draw someone near, to give them courage, to give them strength, to strengthen them on the inside, right? To charge and to exhort is to drive, it's, it's to, ch to charge, is to call people to, to grow, right? It's to train, it's to nurture, it's to, it's to get out of people, it's to help them become their best. Their best. And I love, too, how, you know, Paul says at the end, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, right? The fathers aren't just telling you, hey, remember the standard. Right? It's not just gap one kind of stuff, but it's reminding you. You know what? And remember, this God has called you. Right? He's called you into his own kingdom and glory. That the gospel gives you assurance. Like you're not, I'm not calling you to be something that you're not. I'm not calling you to grow so that you can earn something before God. I'm calling you to grow to be the best that God's made you to be because you've already received God's love. And so the best exhortation, the best encouragement from fathers, and this also goes from others, is that that comes that's with the gospel. And so the best fathers are, are understanding and compassionate. And the best fathers also challenge their children to grow. And so I feel like we've got compassionate and challenging. Um, we can think about it another way, grace and truth. Right, remember that? Grace and truth. So, as I was preparing this, when I got to this point, I started thinking, okay, all right, I need to grow. I want to be a better dad. <laughs> I got to be a better pastor. I need to make sure that I'm having in all the areas of my life, at work, at home, with my friends, my neighbors, I want to have this balance, right? And if you're, if you're in that mode already, you're starting to think you're to apply this, I want you to stop. I want you to stop for a second. And remember that what we're talking about here today, first and foremost, is God's loving authority in your life. I want you to realize that before this is you to others, this is your God. I want you to realize that God is compassionate with you. 
He knows when you're trying hard. He knows, you know, think about the, the mixed motivations from what we see. He understands exactly where you are. He's compassionate. He knows you're just a bunch of dust thrown together with spirit, right? He gets it. He knows your limitations, and he loves you in your limitations. It's hard for us to realize and believe that that's how he treats us when no one else has treated us that way before. This is our God. And he also challenges. He wants you to grow, not because he wants you to earn something. He wants you to grow because as you walk more in his adopting love, as you reflect more of him, you will experience more of heaven on earth. Every time you treat someone else with compassion and a challenge, you actually get a taste of what, it's, of what God is like. You don't just show it to others, but you get to experience it. And so God wants you to have these two things. You need to receive this love from God. This week, we're going to spend time going more in depth in our life groups. Right, our following Jesus together curriculum, that's this week. We're going to be studying the adopting love of God. We're going to review some of what we're talking about. We're going to go beyond and go deeper. Uh, because we actually need each other to learn how to receive this and learn how to walk in it. I know last month with justification, like at the, at the, beginning, of the, at the beginning of the month, in our group, most of the people were like, yeah, we get this. We just don't know how it applies to our daily life. Um, but by the time we were done, it was like people were realizing, oh, 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 this area of struggle, if I apply this truth, then that will make a huge difference. Right? It's the same thing for us. So if you're not in a life group, jump in. Jump in. Join us. Because we need to do this. The component of doing this well, receiving this love and walking in it, is that we have brothers and sisters that are helping us they're praying for us and that we're helping. So some of the groups are really large. We're going to be launching new groups at some point, but it, it, jump in. Jump in and join us. Because it's what we need. It's what we need. When I think about grace and truth, <clears throat> it reminds me of John 1, verse 14. Right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. And so if you need a really clear picture of what it looks like to be this, think about Jesus. Jesus who called us all to the standard because he wanted us to experience God's abundant life. And yet Jesus who knew our limitations, who understood how sinful we are. And so he went to the cross in his compassion. And he gave his life for us. He is, as always, the perfect image of God. He is God revealed in flesh and blood. And if you're trusting in him, he has shown compassion to you. He has loved you. Receive his love. And then ask yourself, how can I reflect this love, this way? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
as we begin with God as Father, that even there, even there, we end up with you showing the Father's love. Jesus, I'm reminded of the parable of the prodigal son, where the father was running down the road, embracing the prodigal who wanted to turn around and come back. Jesus, you told that story while you were eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Jesus, you were that father coming to earth to save and rescue and adopt your people. And we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that the father's love is shown so clearly in your life, in your death and resurrection. Jesus, would you touch those of us who are here and don't know you yet, haven't committed, haven't committed to you. Jesus, would you show them that this is your love for them and help them to trust in you. Lord, we also ask, we also ask, Lord, that you would draw near to all of us and that you would help us to receive this love. And that as we receive this love, we want to be changed from one level of glory to the next. We want to become like you. And so show us the areas, the relationships where we need to grow in these ways. Make it clear, Lord, how we can reflect your love to others. And I pray, too, that you would give us the relational help that we need that we wouldn't do this alone. Thank you that we're in community. Thank you that we have brothers and sisters. Build in us in the course of this month a deeper, uh, a deeper will to receive the fullness of your love. And then help us to show it to others. We pray this in your name. Amen. Receive God's benediction. He says, I am your God. You are my children. I love you. I know you, and I'm with you. Go. Go into your week. Maintain, abide in my love, and share with others. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.